Chapter Twenty One of The First Men in the Moon. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. The First Men in the Moon by H. G. Wells. Chapter Twenty One Mr. Bedford at Littlestone. My line of flight was about parallel with the surface as I came into the upper air. The temperature of sphere began to rise forthwith. I knew it behooved me to drop at once. Far below me, in a darkling twilight, stretched a great expanse of sea. I opened every window I could, and fell, out of sunshine into evening, and out of evening into night. Vaster grew the earth, and vaster, swallowed up the stars and the silvery translucent starlit veil of cloud it wore spread out to catch me. At last the world seemed no longer a sphere but flat, and then concave. It was no longer a planet in the sky, but the world of man. I shut all but an inch or so of earthward window, and dropped with a slackening velocity. The broadening water, now so near that I could see the dark glitter of the waves, rushed up to meet me. The sphere became very hot. I snapped the last strip of window, and sat scowling and biting my knuckles, waiting for the impact. The sphere hit the water with a huge splash. It must have sent it fathoms high. At the splash I flung the Cavorite shutters open. Down I went, but slower and slower, and then I felt the sphere pressing against my feet and so drove up again as a bubble drives. And at the last I was floating and rocking upon the surface of the sea, and my journey in space was at an end. The night was dark and overcast. Two yellow pinpoints far away showed the passing of a ship, and nearer was a red glare that came and went. Had not the electricity of my glow-lamp exhausted itself, I could have got picked up that night. In spite of the inordinate fatigue I was beginning to feel, I was excited now, and for a time hopeful, in a feverish, impatient way, that so my travelling might end. But at last I ceased to move about, and sat, wrists on knees, staring at a distant red light. It swayed up and down, rocking, rocking. My excitement passed. I realized I had yet to spend another night, at least, in the sphere. I perceived myself infinitely heavy and fatigued, and so I fell asleep. A change in my rhythmic motion awakened me. I peered through the refracting glass, and saw that I had come aground upon a huge shallow of sand. Far away I seemed to see houses and trees, and seaward a curved, vague distortion of a ship hung between sea and sky. I stood up and staggered. My one desire was to emerge. The manhole was upward, and I wrestled with the screw. Slowly I opened the manhole. At last the air was singing in again as once it had sung out. But this time I did not wait until the pressure was adjusted. In another moment I had the weight of the window on my hands, and I was open, wide open, to the old familiar sky of earth. 
The air hit me on the chest so that I gasped. I dropped the glass screw. I cried out, put my hands to my chest, and sat down. For a time I was in pain. Then I took deep breaths. At last I could rise and move about again. I tried to thrust my head through the manhole, and the sphere rolled over. It was as though something had lugged my head down directly it emerged. I ducked back sharply, or I should have been pinned face under water. After some wriggling and shoving I managed to crawl out upon sand, over which the retreating waves still came and went. I did not attempt to stand up. It seemed to me that my body must be suddenly changed to lead. Mother Earth had her grip on me now, no Cavorite intervening. I sat down heedless of the water that came over my feet. It was dawn, a grey dawn, rather overcast, but showing here and there a long patch of greenish-grey. Some way out a ship was lying at anchor, a pale silhouette of a ship with one yellow light. The water came rippling in, in long shallow waves. Away to the right curved the land, a shingle-bank with little hovels, and at last a lighthouse, a sailing mark and a point. Inland stretched a space of level sand, broken here and there by pools of water, and ending a mile away, perhaps, in a low shore of scrub. To the northeast some isolated watering-place was visible, a row of gaunt lodging-houses, the tallest things that I could see on earth, dull dabs against the brightening sky. What strange men can have reared these vertical piles in such an amplitude of space, I do not know. There they are, like pieces of Brighton, lost in the waste. For a long time I sat there, yawning and rubbing my face. At last I struggled to rise. It made me feel that I was lifting a weight. I stood up. I stared at the distant houses. For the first time since our starvation in the crater I thought of earthly food. Bacon, I whispered, eggs, good toast and good coffee, and how the devil am I going to get all this stuff to Limpney? I wondered where I was. It was an east shore anyhow, and I had seen Europe before I dropped. I heard footsteps crunching in the sand, and a little round-faced, friendly-looking man in flannels, with a bathing-towel wrapped about his shoulders, and his bathing-dress over his arm, appeared up the beach. I knew instantly that I must be in England. He was staring most intently at the sphere and me. He advanced, staring. I dare say I looked a ferocious savage enough, dirty, unkempt, to an indescribable degree but it did not occur to me at the time. He stopped at a distance of twenty yards. "'Hullo, my man,' he said doubtfully. "'Hullo yourself,' said I. He advanced, reassured by that. "'What on earth is that thing?' he asked. "'Can you tell me where I am?' I asked. "'That's Littlestone,' he said, pointing to the houses. "'And that's Dungeness.' "'Have you just landed? What's that thing you've got? Some sort of machine?' "'Yes.' "'Have you floated ashore? Have you been wrecked or something? What is it?' I meditated swiftly. 
I made an estimate of the little man's appearance as he drew nearer. "'By Jove!' he said. "'You've had a time of it. I thought you—well, where were you cast away? Is that thing a sort of floating thing for saving life?' I decided to take that line for the present. I made a few vague affirmatives. "'I want help,' I said hoarsely. "'I want to get some stuff up the beach.' stuff i can't very well leave about i became aware of three other pleasant-looking young men with towels blazers and straw hats coming down the sands toward me evidently the early bathing section of this little stone help said the young man rather he became vaguely active what particularly do you want done he turned round and gesticulated the three young men accelerated their pace. In a minute they were there about me, plying me with questions I was indisposed to answer. "'I'll tell all that later,' I said. "'I'm dead beat. I'm a rag.' "'Come up to the hotel,' said the foremost little man. "'We'll look after that thing there.' I hesitated. "'I can't,' I said. In that sphere there's two big bars of gold. They looked incredulously at one another, then at me with a new inquiry. I went to the sphere, stooped, crept in, and presently they had the selenite's crowbars and the broken chain before them. If I had not been so horribly fagged I could have laughed at them. It was like kittens round a beetle. They didn't know what to do with the stuff. The fat little man stooped and lifted the end of one of the bars, and then dropped it with a grunt. Then they all did. "'It's lead—or gold,' said one. "'Oh, it's gold,' said another. "'Gold right enough,' said the third. Then they all stared at me, and then they all stared at the ship lying at anchor. "'I say,' cried the little man, "'but where did you get that?' I was too tired to keep up a lie. I got it in the moon. I saw them stare at one another. Look here, said I. I'm not going to argue now. Help me carry these lumps of gold up to the hotel. I guess, with rest, two of you can manage one. And I'll trail this chain thing. And I'll tell you more when I've had some food. And how about that thing? It won't hurt there, I said. Anyhow, confound it, it must stop there now. If the tide comes up, it will float all right. And in a state of enormous wonderment, these young men most obediently hoisted my treasures on their shoulders, and with limbs that felt like lead, I headed a sort of procession towards that distant fragment of seafront. Halfway there we were reinforced by two awe-stricken little girls with spades, and later a lean little boy, with a penetrating sniff, appeared. He was, I remember, wheeling a bicycle, and he accompanied us at a distance of about a hundred yards on our right flank, and then, I suppose, gave us up as uninteresting, mounted his bicycle, and rode off over the level sands in the direction of the sphere. I glanced back after him. "'He won't touch it,' said the stout young man reassuringly and I was only too willing to be reassured. At first something of the grey of the morning was in my mind, 
but presently the sun disengaged itself from the level clouds of the horizon and lit the world, and turned the leaden sea to glittering waters. My spirits rose. A sense of the vast importance of the things I had done and had yet to do came with the sunlight into my mind. I laughed aloud as the foremost man staggered under my gold. When indeed I took my place in the world, how amazed the world would be! If it had not been for my inordinate fatigue, the landlord of the Littlestone Hotel would have been amusing, as he hesitated between my gold and my respectable company on the one, and my filthy appearance on the other. But at last I found myself in a terrestrial bathroom once more, with warm water to wash myself with, and a change of raiment, preposterously small indeed, but anyhow clean, that the genial little man had lent me. He lent me a razor, too, but I could not screw up my resolution to attack even the outposts of the bristling beard that covered my face. I sat down to an English breakfast and ate with a sort of languid appetite, an appetite many weeks old and very decrepit, and stirred myself to answer the questions of the four young men, and I told them the truth. "'Well,' said I, "'as you press me, I got it in the moon.' "'The moon?' "'Yes, the moon in the sky.' "'But how do you mean?' "'What I say, confound it!' "'Then you have just come from the moon?' "'Exactly, through space, in that ball.' And I took a delicious mouthful of egg. I made a private note that when I went back to the moon I would take a box of eggs. I could see clearly that they did not believe one word what I told them, but evidently they considered me the most respectable liar they had ever met.' They glanced at one another, and then concentrated the fire of their eyes on me. I fancied they expected a clue to me in the way I helped myself to salt. They seemed to find something significant in my peppering my egg. These strangely shaped masses of gold they had staggered under held their minds. There the lumps lay in front of me, each worth thousands of pounds, and as impossible for any one to steal as a house or a piece of land. As I looked at their curious faces over my coffee cup, I realized something of the enormous wilderness of explanations into which I should have to wander to render myself comprehensible again. "'You don't really mean,' began the youngest young man, in the tone of one who speaks to an obstinate child." "'Just pass me that toast-rack,' I said, and shut him up completely. "'But look here, I say,' began one of the others. "'We're not going to believe that, you know.' "'Ah, well,' said I, and shrugged my shoulders. "'He doesn't want to tell us,' said the youngest young man in a stage aside, and then with an appearance of great sang-froid. "'You don't mind if I take a cigarette?' I waved him a cordial assent, and proceeded with my breakfast. Two of the others went and looked out of the farther window, and talked inaudibly. I was struck by a thought. "'The tide,' I said, "'is running out?' There was a pause, a doubt who should answer me. "'It's near the ebb,' said the fat little man. 
"'Well, anyhow,' I said, "'it won't float far.' I decapitated my third egg and began a little speech. "'Look here,' I said. "'Please don't imagine I'm surly, or telling you uncivil lies, or anything of that sort. I'm forced almost to be a little short and mysterious. I can quite understand this is as queer as it can be, and that your imaginations must be going it. I can assure you, you're in at a memorable time. But I can't make it clear to you now. It's impossible. I give you my word of honor I've come from the moon, and that's all I can tell you. All the same, I'm tremendously obliged to you, you know, tremendously. I hope that my manner hasn't in any way given you offence. Oh, not in the least, said the youngest young man affably. We can quite understand. And staring hard at me all the time, he heeled his chair back until it very nearly upset, and recovered with some exertion. Not a bit of it said the fat young man. "'Don't you imagine that?' And they all got up and dispersed, and walked about and lit cigarettes, and generally tried to show they were perfectly amiable and disengaged, and entirely free from the slightest curiosity about me and the sphere. "'I'm going to keep an eye on that ship out there all the same,' I heard one of them remarking in an undertone. If only they could have forced themselves to it, they would, I believe, even have gone out and left me. I went on with my third egg. "'The weather,' the fat little man remarked presently, "'has been immense, has it not? I don't know when we have had such a summer.' "'Foo-whiz!' Like a tremendous rocket, and somewhere a window was broken. "'What's that?' said I. "'It isn't,' cried the little man, and rushed to the corner window. All the others rushed to the window likewise. I sat staring at them. Suddenly I leaped up, knocked over my third egg, rushed for the window also. I had just thought of something. "'Nothing to be seen there,' cried the little man, rushing for the door. "'It's that boy!' I cried. Bawling in hoarse fury, "'It's that accursed boy!' and turning about I pushed the waiter aside. He had just brung me some more toast, and rushed violently out of the room and down and out upon the queer little esplanade in front of the hotel. The sea, which had been smooth, was rough now with hurrying cat's paws, and all about where the sphere had been was tumbled water like the wake of a ship. Above a little puff of cloud whirled like dispersing smoke, and the three or four people on the beach were peering up with interrogative faces towards the point of that unexpected report. And that was all. Boots and waiters and the four young men in blazers came rushing out behind me. Shouts came from windows and doors, and all sorts of worrying people came into sight, agape. For a time I stood there, too overwhelmed by this new development to think of the people. At first I was too stunned to see the thing as any definite disaster. I was just stunned, as a man is by some accidental violent blow. It is only afterwards he begins to appreciate his specific injury. Good Lord! 
I felt as though somebody was pouring funk out of a can down the back of my neck. My legs became feeble. I had got the first intimation of what the disaster meant for me. There was that confounded boy, sky high. I was utterly left. There was the gold in the coffee-room, my only possession on earth. How would it all work out? The general effect was of a gigantic, unmanageable confusion. "'I say,' said the voice of the little man behind, "'I say, you know.' I wheeled about, and there were twenty or thirty people, a sort of irregular investment of people, all bombarding me with dumb interrogation, with infinite doubt and suspicion. I felt the compulsion of their eyes intolerably. I groaned aloud. "'I can't!' I shouted. "'I tell you I can't. I'm not equal to it. You must puzzle and—and and be damned to you!' I gesticulated convulsively. He receded a step as though I had threatened him. I made a bolt through them into the hotel. I charged back into the coffee-room, rang the bell furiously. I gripped the waiter as he entered. "'Do you hear?' I shouted. "'Get help and carry these bars up to my room right away!' He failed to understand me, and I shouted and raved at him. A scared-looking little old man in a green apron appeared, and further two of the young men in flannels. I made a dash at them and commandeered their services. As soon as the gold was in my room I felt free to quarrel. "'Now get out!' I shouted. "'All of you get out if you don't want to see a man go mad before your eyes!' And I helped the waiter by the shoulder as he hesitated in the doorway. And then, as soon as I had the door locked on them all, I tore off the little man's clothes again, shied them right and left, and got into bed forthwith and there I lay swearing and panting and cooling for a very long time. At last I was calm enough to get out of bed, and ring up the round-eyed waiter for a flannel nightshirt, a soda and whiskey, and some good cigars. And these things being procured me, after an exasperating delay that drove me several times to the bell, I locked the door again and proceeded very deliberately to look the entire situation in the face. The net result of the great experiment presented itself as an absolute failure. It was a rout, and I was the sole survivor. It was an absolute collapse, and this was the final disaster. There was nothing for it but to save myself, and as much as I could in the way of prospects from our debacle. At one fatal crowning blow all my vague resolutions of return and recovery had vanished. My intention of going back to the moon, of getting a sphere full of gold, and afterwards of having a fragment of Cavorite analyzed and so recovering the great secret, perhaps finally even of recovering Cavor's body, all these ideas vanished altogether. I was the sole survivor, and that was all. I think that going to bed was one of the luckiest ideas I have ever had in an emergency. I really believe I should either have got loose-headed or done some indiscreet thing. But there, locked in and secure from all interruptions, I could think out the position and all its bearings and make my arrangements at leisure.
Of course, it was quite clear to me what had happened to the boy. He had crawled into the sphere, meddled with the studs, shut the cavorite windows, and gone up. It was highly improbable he had screwed the manhole stopper, and even if he had, the chances were a thousand to one against his getting back. It was fairly evident that he would gravitate with my bales to somewhere near the middle of the sphere and remain there, and so cease to be a legitimate terrestrial interest. However remarkable he might seem to the inhabitants of some remote quarter of space, I very speedily convinced myself on that point. And as for any responsibility I might have in the matter, the more I reflected upon that, the clearer it became that if only I kept quiet about things, I need not trouble myself about that. If I was faced by sorrowing parents demanding their lost boy, I had merely to demand my lost sphere, or ask them what they meant. At first I had had a vision of weeping parents and guardians, and all sorts of complications, but now I saw that I simply had to keep my mouth shut, and nothing in that way could arise. And, indeed, the more I lay and smoked and thought, the more evident became the wisdom of impenetrability. It is within the right of every British citizen, provided he does not commit damage nor indecorum, to appear suddenly wherever he pleases, and as ragged and filthy as he pleases, and with whatever account of virgin gold he sees fit to encumber himself, and no one has any right at all to hinder and detain him in this procedure. I formulated that at last to myself, and repeated it over as a sort of private magna charta of my liberty. Once I had put that issue on one side, I could take up and consider in an equable manner certain considerations I had scarcely dared to think of before, namely, those arising out of the circumstances of my bankruptcy. But now, looking at this matter calmly and at leisure, I could see that if only I suppressed my identity by a temporary assumption of some less well-known name, and if I retained the two months' beard that had grown upon me, the risk of any annoyance from the spiteful creditor to whom I had already alluded became very small indeed. From that to a definite course of rational worldly action was plain sailing. It was all amazingly petty, no doubt, but what was there remaining for me to do? Whatever I did, I was resolved that I would keep myself level and right side up. I ordered up writing materials, and addressed a letter to the new Romney Bank, the nearest, the waiter informed me, telling the manager I wished to open an account with him, and requesting him to send two trustworthy persons, properly authenticated, in a cab with a good horse, to fetch some hundredweight of gold with which I happened to be encumbered. I signed the letter Blake, which seemed to me to be a thoroughly respectable sort of name. This done, I got a Folkestone blue book, picked out an outfitter, and asked him to send a cutter to measure me for a dark tweed suit, ordering at the same time a valise, dressing-bag, brown boots, shirts, hat to fit, and so forth, and from a watchmaker I also ordered a watch and these letters being dispatched, I had up as good as lunch as the hotel could give, and then lay smoking a cigar, as calm and ordinary as possible, 
until in accordance with my instructions two duly authenticated clerks came from the bank, and weighed and took away my gold. After which I pulled the clothes over my ears, in order to drown any knocking, and went very comfortably to sleep. I went to sleep. No doubt it was a prosaic thing for the first man back from the moon to do, and I can imagine that the young and imaginative reader will find my behavior disappointing. But I was horribly fatigued and bothered, and, confound it, what else was there to do? There certainly was not the remotest chance of my being believed, if I had told my story then, and it would certainly have subjected me to intolerable annoyances. I went to sleep. When at last I woke up again I was ready to face the world as I have always been accustomed to face it, since I came to years of discretion. And so I got away to Italy, and there it is I am writing this story. If the world will not have it as fact, then the world may take it as fiction. It is no concern of mine. And now that the account is finished, I am amazed to think how completely this adventure is gone and done with. Everybody believes that Cavour was a not-very-brilliant scientific experimenter who blew up his house and himself at Limpney, and they explain the bang that followed my arrival at Littlestone by a reference to the experiments with explosives that are going on continually at the government establishment of Lyd, two miles away. I must confess that hitherto I have not acknowledged my share in the disappearance of Master Tommy Simmons, which was that little boy's name. That, perhaps, may prove a difficult item of corroboration to explain away. They account for my appearance in rags with two bars of indisputable gold upon the Littlestone beach in various ingenious ways. It doesn't worry me what they think of me. They say I have strung all these things together to avoid being questioned too closely as to the source of my wealth. I would like to see the man who could invent a story that would hold together like this one. Well, they must take it as fiction. There it is. I have told my story, and now I suppose I have to take up the worries of this terrestrial life again. Even if one has been to the moon, one has still to earn a living. So I am working here at Amalfi, on the scenario of that play I sketched before Cavour came walking into my world and I am trying to piece my life together as it was before ever I saw him. I must confess that I find it hard to keep my mind on the play when the moonshine comes into my room. It is full moon here, and last night I was out on the pergola for hours, staring away at the shining blankness that hides so much. Imagine it! Tables and chairs, and trestles and bars of gold! Confound it! if only one could hit on that cavorite again. But a thing like that doesn't come twice in a life. Here I am, a little better off than I was at Limpney, and that is all. And Cavour has committed suicide in a more elaborate way than any human being ever did before. So the story closes as finally and completely as a dream. It fits in so little with all the other things of life, so much of it is so utterly remote from all human experience, the leaping, the eating, the breathing, and these weightless times, that indeed there are moments when, in spite of my moon gold, I do more than half believe myself that the whole thing was a dream. End of chapter